أعوذ بالله من الشيطان العين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful And may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad And the purified members of his household and progeny اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد وعجل فرجهم سلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Brothers So today inshallah the topic is going to be To continue with the Prophethood of our Prophet Muhammad So until now we have spoken I think in enough detail about the proofs of his prophethood and we reached the point where we're talking about his main miracle being the Holy Quran and once we explored a little bit the previous scriptures we looked at the Holy Quran itself and we wanted to look at it from two very specific angles that I think are very relevant and very important for all of us. The first one has to do with the miraculous aspect or the miraculous dimension of the Holy Quran. And uh, the exploration that we had, the little bit of time that we had, we looked at three dimensions of the miraculous nature of the Holy Quran in a little bit more detail. Uh, and uh, in there, we also explored very quickly a couple of the more uh, interesting, I guess, uh, dimensions of the miraculous nature of the Qur'an, including prophecies and including the scientific nature of some of the verses of the Holy Qur'an, and how the Qur'an was basically able to present all of this to the world 14 centuries ago uh, from a very barbaric, uh, uncivilized background that the Arabs used to be. And from a man who was never known to be lettered, to be educated, to have access to libraries or the centers of civilization on earth. And so on all accounts, all of those dimensions add to the miraculous nature of the contents of the Holy Quran. And I did mention this, uh, <clears throat> this note very quickly last time, but allow me to say it again, just so that it's clear and then we can move on to today's topic. And the note is that we have to be very careful when we go into the scientific aspect of some of the verses of the Holy Quran, and we saw some of them. There are verses that talk about embryology. There are verses that talk about cosmology. There are verses that talk about um, uh, the manner in which uh, the, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes the water uh, cycle into nature uh, from it to create the uh, clouds that bring back the precipitation. Uh, and there are also verses in the Quran that clearly talk about geology. There are verses that talk about all sorts of different uh, dimensions of the miraculous nature that is referred to as the miraculous nature of the Holy Quran. So there is no question that there is much in the Holy Quran that has to do with a scientific aspect or a scientific dimension. The problem sometimes that some people fall into, and it's a weakness that we have to make sure that we don't fall into, is that we have to be careful in knowing what is considered a truth and what is only a scientific theory. Uh, there's someone who's not muted. Uh, please mute yourselves. Uh, if someone is um, not, is going to look at the manner in which science is created uh, and science is constructed, Today we have a certain version, let's say, of what uh, gravity is or how matter is made up of atoms. 
and the strong and weak uh, relationships uh, at the atomic level that we find, the forces, the strong and weak forces, atomic forces, and so on and so forth. If you look at what is presented, what is dark matter, what is gravity, what is energy, what is mass, uh, the speed of light, all of this is part of one network of uh, ideas and notions and theories that are built together, and that could change depending on the progress of science. So someone may come up with a much better uh, explanation and interpretation of what's going on in the world in terms of gravity, where we no longer apply what we have today in the gravitational theory. Today it works very well, but if tomorrow we had a more precise and more predictive and theory with more predictive ability, this would be put aside in favor of another theory. So this is where we have to be careful and we can't just jump into the Quran and say, see the Quran here is talking about the Big Bang Theory. The Quran certainly says that the, the heavens are an expansion. The Quran certainly says that the heavens and the earth were bound together and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ripped them apart and that they used to be smoke before and so on and so forth. But from there to jump and say, therefore the Quran says the Big Bang Theory is true. And then in five years or 10 years, they may show that the Big Bang Theory is actually not true. There's a much better theory than the Big Bang Theory. Then what would we say then? That the Quran was wrong? So this is where we have to be careful. Either we are saying the verse of the Quran says this or it doesn't. And where we're not sure, we have to be very clear and very detailed and very accurate in the manner in which we describe the verses of the Quran, uh, especially with regards to things related to science, for instance. And then for the rest, I don't want to go back. We mentioned a number of the prophecies mentioned in the Quran. We talked about the Romans and the Persians and Bidayat Surah Al-Rum, the first verses of Surah Al-Rum. Uh, we talked about Abu Lahab. There are other verses in the Quran that all fall under this notion of prophecies that we find in the Quran. For instance, the Battle of Badr at a time when the Muslims felt that they were extremely weak and that they would never be able to be victorious and never be able to live comfortable lives and beat those uh, polytheists at the hands of whom they were being persecuted and being oppressed. Them and their families were being tortured, killed. They were being exiled. So in all of those cases, what we see is the Holy Quran was, uh, in all of those cases, we see that the Holy Quran was uh, clearly prophesizing that the Muslims were going to be victorious in a battle, for instance, and that they were going to be able to defeat the alliance of the Arabs uh, that actually came to be exactly in the Battle of Badr when they came and they were an alliance against the Muslims, and so on and so forth in the different uh, uh, prophecies indicated in the Holy Quran, which is another, another source of the miraculous nature of the Quran. So, this was kind of just to wrap up based on some things that we heard, uh, a little bit to wrap up the previous topic related to the miraculous nature of the Quran. What we wanted to talk about today, uh, and once again, brothers, if uh, at the 40 minute mark we lose the connection, I will, resend the, uh, I will resend the link automatically and right away into the same group so that you can click on it and come back into the, into the meeting. Today, what we want to talk about is the second aspect related to the importance of the Quran, and that is the authenticity of the Quran. So we said we wanted to look at the Quran from the point of view of it being a miracle, and we want to look at the Holy Quran from the point of view of it being authentic. So we've established the miraculous nature of the Holy Quran. Now we want to establish the 
uh, authenticity of the Quran in the sense that the book that we currently have, and as you remember, we talked about previous scriptures, and we said these are no longer the scriptures that were given to the prophets. These have been altered, they've been modified, they've been changed. As for now, they no longer have the book that was revealed to their prophets. If we come to the Holy Quran, does the Quran suffer from anything that makes it weak in that sense? Or can we say at the end of the day that this book that the Muslims refer to as the Quran is the actual book revealed to this man, Muhammad Sallallahu 14 centuries ago? Does humanity have access to the same scripture that was given to Muhammad Sallallahu and use, can they use that as their means of guidance moving forward or not? That's the main question that we're trying to answer. So the main proofs that we're going to present, we're gonna split the proof into a, couple of, uh, into a couple of parts. First of all, we need to establish that there is a necessity for the scripture to be the actual scripture from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Secondly, we wanna look at what do we mean when we say that this is the same scripture? So we can talk about, has anything been added to it? Has anything been removed from it? And do we consider this to be the complete version of the scripture or not? So let's start from the beginning. If we said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to guide humanity, we said that it becomes necessary to send a guidance to them in one form and shape or another. Because they do not have all of the, they do, humanity does not have the tools it needs to guide itself, to reach its own conclusions, to reach its own truths. And we gave multiple examples of this. For instance, humanity does not have the tools to access what happens after death. We don't have the tools for that. You can't do it through reason. You can't do it through empirical science or what you know today we call material science, empirical means. So what do you have? You have no access except that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you access to that through revelation. That's one example. So now if we say, please, please mute yourselves, brothers who are, who are joining. So in the same manner that we said Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala there's a necessity for him to send people to guide humanity. There's a necessity to keep that guidance going through scriptures. And we have established this, and we have established that from the time Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals to the time it's part of a scripture, there's no question there. The question is what happens afterwards. What has happened historically, and we saw many examples of this in the previous lessons, is that the previous scriptures were manipulated. People played around with them. They added things that were not in them. They removed things that were in them. They removed them out of them. And they modified the actual scripture for all sorts of personal gain and personal benefit. So what about the Holy Quran? Beginning from the historical perspective, let's start from the historical perspective. If someone studies the history of Islam in detail, you are go going to quickly find out that the Muslims gave an unmatched importance to the Holy Quran right from the beginning because of the teachings of the Holy Prophet. So right from the beginning of the revelation of the Holy Quran, the Muslims have been obsessively studying and memorizing and writing the Quran. And this started from the time of the Holy Prophet, even before the Holy Quran was 
entirely compiled into a book. From the moment that the revelation began and the verses of the Quran began, and as we said, they were revealed to the Holy Prophet who was communicating them to his followers over 23 years. During that time, he lived in Mecca for 13 years. He lived in Medina for 10 years. During that time, there were people who were writing and memorizing the Holy Quran from the beginning and an ongoing continuous basis. And then afterwards, if anyone looks at the works of the Muslims, the different scholars and people who specialized, especially in the scientific and the Quranic sciences, you see that they gave an unmatched importance to the Quran. They counted the words of the Quran. They counted the letters of the Quran. The, they obsessively studied the Holy Quran right from the beginning. So if you look at the Quran from a historical perspective, if you go back in history and you see how Muslims dealt with the Holy Quran, there should be no doubt in anyone's mind that this is the same book that has been written by scribes, by people who memorized it, and through generations all the way down to the book that we currently have today. This is not something that began, let's say, centuries after the revelation happened, as was the case, and as we saw, with previous scriptures, for instance. Now, so this is the historical argument for the authenticity of the Holy Quran. Is there more? Can we add more uh, arguments to establish the authenticity of the Holy Quran or not? So yes, we can. And this is what we're going to do very quickly right now. So let's look at this argument that the Quran may, have, may not be authentic. This could mean, first, that there are things that have been added to the Holy Quran that were not part of the original scripture. It could also mean that there are things that have been removed, omissions, so omitted or removed from the Quran that were part of the original scripture. So we want to look at these two, one after the other. First one is addition. Has anything ever been added to the Quran that was not part of the Quran? About this point, all the Muslims are unanimous that there is not a single letter or a word or a sentence or a verse or a chapter that was added to the original scripture as revealed to the Holy Prophet. There is unanimity on this. No one has ever questioned this in the Muslim world. Now, what about the rational argument? Can we prove this rationally or more based on, more on reason than anything else? Yes, we can. But it relies on something that we presented when we talked about the miraculous nature of the Quran. We said, the Holy Quran challenges humanity to try to duplicate it or duplicate 10 of its chapters or duplicate a single one of its chapters, even though it may be a chapter of one line of three verses. What this tells us, and this is something proven and we don't have time to get into all of the details here, is that everything in the Holy Quran has a very specific place because it's part of a bigger canvas, a bigger network of sounds, of uh, meanings. It's a network. It's, they call it a semantic network. So all the meanings are related to each other. All the sounds are related to each other. It's not poetry, but it had a poetic intonation and so on and so forth. If anyone plays around with a verse, if anyone plays around with a word, if anyone plays around with a letter in a single word, in a verse in the Quran, it would stand out as something not sitting right to the person listening to it. 
and it would have been caught centuries and centuries ago by those who were dedicating their lives to try to show that the Holy Quran is not a actual revelation and miraculous book revealed to Muhammad And the truth is, this has never happened. No one has ever been able to show that. And from a rational perspective, anyone who would be able to add a new notion, anyone who would be able to add a new topic or a new theme to the Quran, it would be equivalent to having answered the challenge of the Quran that challenges humanity by saying, if you can replicate it or a part of it. And so if anyone claims that there's anything that has been added to the Holy Quran, they have to first show that this challenge has been met and someone has been able to duplicate any part of the Holy Quran in this manner. And because we said that this is established that no one has, then no one can say that anything has ever been added to the Holy Quran. And the proof from the Quran in support of this is from Surah Al-Isra, which we recited a few times. Say, should all of the human beings and the jinn rally together to bring the like of this Quran, they will not bring the like of it, even if they assisted one another. Now, what about omissions? What about pieces, parts, sections of the Quran that would be removed from the Quran? Here again, there is unanimity. All the scholars of Islam in their different sects and schools of thought, all of them agree within their schools that nothing has ever been removed from the Holy Quran. Except that, and it's very unfortunate, there are many, many narrations that we find in Islam, in, in, Sunni, in the Sunni school and in the Shia school, we find many narrations that seem to indicate that there are parts, words or parts of the Qur'an that have been omitted, that have been removed. They used to be part of the original scripture revealed to the Holy Prophet, but with time and for different reasons, they were removed. Okay? And this is very unfortunate. This is not limited to the Shia. And it's very unfortunate that the Muslims have to deal with hundreds dozens or you know hundreds of narrations that say that there are parts of the Quran that used to be there and they've been omitted and we have some examples that are very foolish if you actually look at the wording and how they're said and it does not work at all with the rest of the as we called it the wording the intonation and the semantics of the Quran it doesn't work but they claim that those were part of it part of the Quran and they were removed there are narrations to that effect what do we do with those First of all, no school of thought takes any of this seriously. End of story. So yes, they exist, but they're not considered authentic. Two, this is not, so don't let anyone ever fool you into thinking that this is limited to the Shia school of thought. These narrations exist in, for, by all Muslims and all schools of thought. They have narrations that say that this, is, this Quran, uh, there are parts of it that have been removed. Okay? So this is not limited to the Shia. The Shia have these narrations and others have these narrations. Secondly, the scholars reject all of these narrations as being not authentic. They're fabrications. They were the infiltrated the Islamic heritage of traditions and narrations for all sorts of reasons by people who you know, were sick and wanted to show that the Quran is not an authentic revelation. In the case where we say that, yes, there are narrations that clearly state that the Quran is not the Quran, and however you want to you wanna see how the wording of these narrations is, is stated, what it boils down to, what it comes down to, is that these are saying that the meanings of the Qur'an 
are being falsified. The Quran, when it says this, it's referring to A and not B, but you have made it seem as though the verse is referring to B. This is in no way, shape, or form saying that the Quran is altered. This is saying that the original meanings of the Quran may have been taken left and right wrongly by people who are trying to make the Quran say things that it does not say. But this has nothing to do with the actual wording of the Quran. It has to do with what are the words of the Quran, what are the meanings of the Quran referring to. So in those cases, yes, we have many narr uh, narrations and we have many scholars who uh, actually do uh, support this interpretation of some of the narrations that say that it is the meanings of the Quran that have been distorted, and that have been manipulated. Uh, the newly joining brother, please uh, mute yourself. Okay, so now if we go to the uh, omissions, if we continue with the omissions, the importance that the Holy Quran has given to, the, the Holy Prophet has given to the Holy Quran, that the Imams have given to the Holy Quran, that the scholars and the Muslims have given to the Holy Quran, go against this argument. That there is anything that used to be part of the Quran and that has disappeared. As we said, Muslims have obsessively studied the Holy Quran. They have memorized it, they recited, they memorized it, they've calculated the numbers of letters and words and verses in the Holy Quran. What would happen if suddenly someone came and said there are parts of the Quran that used to be part of it and that, that were removed? I think someone by now would have produced some evidence that this is the case, when the, especially given the continuous attention the Muslims have given to the Holy Quran. Secondly, the Quran itself, because now we have established that the Quran is the word of God, we have established that it is miraculous. The Quran itself says about itself, it is we who have sent down the remembrance, the Quran, the dhikr, and indeed it is us or it is we who will preserve it. So this is a scriptural proof, a proof from the Quran itself that the Quran is not manipulated, distorted, uh, and not authentic. Now someone might say, but this is circular logic. No, it's not. But you have to be very careful on how you apply it. We said there are two ways, two main ways to talk about what is happening to the Quran. Either you say something is being added to it or something being removed from it. We did not use this verse to say nothing was added to the Quran. Why? because this verse itself could have been added. So you have the whole Quran, and then someone comes and adds this verse. So when we talk about the addition, we did not uh, refute the argument that nothing was added to the Quran by using this verse. We only used reason, and we used the other arguments that we provided, so that we don't fall into circular logic, if you remember. So that we say, well, why hasn't there anything been revealed in the Quran that is an addition to the original scripture. And someone might say, but the Quran says about itself, there's a verse in the Quran that says, nothing, uh, this Quran is, is preserved. Allah says we're going to preserve this Quran. The question would be, well, what guarantees that this verse itself was not added? And you would have no answer. And you fall into a circular logic. But if we say now, we want to concentrate on the second part. So that's why we gave another argument for that. Has anything been taken out from the Quran, omitted from the Quran? that used to be part of the original, here you can use this verse. Because we know that this is the Quran that we have, the Quran that we have, with everything in it, and it includes this verse. 
So the question is not whether this verse or any other verse is part of the Quran. The question is, was there something in the Quran that is no longer there? That's a different question. And so here you can use this verse to say, and the Quran says, whatever is here has been preserved. And no one can come back and say, but what about this verse? Yeah, this verse is part of what has been preserved. Therefore, the whole Quran has been preserved. Inshallah, that's clear. And we don't fall under uh, circular logic. Now, if we move to uh, a final note about the omission, sometimes someone might say, uh, there are versions of the Quran. There are versions of the Quran that have mistakes. Someone typed the Quran and there are typos. There are people who have created versions of the Quran that exist today that have distortions, that have been manipulated, that are not authentic versions of the whole Quran. Those exist today. Does it mean that the verse is saying no one will ever make a typo, no one will ever make a mistake in transcribing the Quran, that there are no uh, not authentic versions of the Quran, copies of the Quran that are not true, not genuine, that don't exist? Of course not. The, ver the Quran is saying that if someone wants to find the truth about the Quran, the Quran is going to be protected until the end of times. It's not saying that there are not, not going to be any attempts to distort it or that there will be never any typos or mistakes or anything of that sort, okay? So these are two very different understandings of what the verse is saying. So everybody, if they are sincere and objective and truthful and trying to reach the truth about the Quran, they should be able to reach that truth. Now, here I wanted to add a little bit more that's kind of the gist of the argument, and inshallah, that part is clear to all of you. I wanted to add a little bit more detail to you and to give you a little bit, uh, a couple of references. I think this topic has been attacked a lot recently, especially, I don't know if you are into this world or not. I mean, the attacks against the Quran are on a daily basis. There are articles, there are books being written by people who are becoming experts, who dedicate, there are professors of universities who have dedicated their lives to studying the Quran to show that it is not authentic, to show that it is stolen from others, to show that the words of the Quran are not Arabic, they're Syriac or Aramaic or, 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 and that parts of the Quran all come from the Bible. And that's the reason, that's how Muhammad was able to get access to that knowledge is because he constantly interfaced and interacted with the Jews and the Christians living in uh, around Mecca and uh, surrounding the Medina and so on and so forth. These attacks are incessant. There are entire books written about this. If ever you are exposed to this, some of these may shake someone's belief. That's why I thought I'd spend just a little bit more time getting into the details of this, giving you a few more details to make sure that you understand the authenticity of the Qur'an from a historic point of view. If you want to get into the details of this field, this field is part of Ulum al-Qur'an. Okay, for those of you who are interested, you go in a field called Ulum al-Qur'an. There are very large books uh, written, multi-volume books. Sheikh Hadi Ma'rafat wrote his 10-volume book called Ulum al-Qur'an. There are others, other scholars who have written uh, eight volume, 10 volume, five volume, three volume books, all called Ulum al-Quran. And as part of that, there's an entire, there are sections in there that study all the manuscripts of the Quran, <clears throat> that study the compilation and authenticity of the compilation. How was the Quran put together? Who wrote it? And at what times? 
and so on and so forth. Okay, so I invite you to go and research that if you want more, and I'll give you a few references at the end if you're interested. Now, if I want to look at one of the uh, references that I'm going to be giving you, it's called The History of the Quranic Text by Al-A'zami. Okay, the book is available and it was published by, you know, university presses, academic work, very well known. He writes in there, the sea of incentives and opportunities for learning the Holy Book. So all the multiple reasons that existed at the time of the Holy Prophet, so his companions and the next generations, but he's talking about the time of the Holy Prophet. All the reasons for which a Muslim would want to learn the Holy Book coupled with the waves of people involved in disseminating it. So the Holy Prophet actually gave a mission, a job to people to learn the Quran and go teach it to others. They were officially, that was their job, their career. They were specialists of the Quran who would memorize it and would go out and recite it and teach others how to memorize it and recite it. Okay, so in addition to wanting to learn, there are people involved in disseminating the Quran and all of that soon yielded a prodigious number of companions who had thoroughly memorized it by heart. So very quickly, the Holy Quran was memorized entirety in its entirety by heart. And these are the people that have been always referred to as Al-Hafaz. And they existed since the time of the Holy Prophet. So right away, he tells us in the book, in this book, he gives us the names of 40 of these Hafaz. And he says at a bare minimum, these are the, 40 of the people who knew the whole, the whole Quran by heart. Okay, this is in page 64. And then he adds in page 66, history has not always dealt kindly with scriptures. Jesus's original gospel, as we shall see later on, as he says, was irretrievably lost in its infancy and replaced by biographical works. This is the gospels, if you remember them, we read them, the four gospels works of anonymous writers lacking any first-hand knowledge of their subject. Likewise, the Old Testament suffered heavily under chronic idolatry and neglect. There can be no sharper contrast than the Quran, blessed as it was with rapid diffusion through the Arabian Peninsula during the Prophet's lifetime. So while the Holy Prophet was still alive and people could still authenticate what they're hearing with him, the Qur'an was being spread in the entire Arabian world, carried forth by companions who had learned its verses, received their teaching commissions directly from the Prophet himself. So it was the Holy Prophet who mandated and gave this job to people by making sure that they knew the Qur'an like the Holy Prophet wanted them to know it, and then to go teach it like he wants them to teach it to the rest of the Islamic world. And... Do we mean by this that this is all an oral tradition? Because we hear this a lot. It's all an oral tradition. People who learn it by hearing and then they repeat. Of course, the oral tradition was, uh, was the predominant one. But it's not all an oral tradition. It was written from the beginning. If you go back, go study the life of Umar ibn al-Khattab and how he entered Islam. Right before he enters Islam, we are told in a story that I don't have time to tell right now. We're running out of time. We are told that he came into the house of his sister who had the Qur'an, a scroll on which the Qur'an was written. Obviously not the full Qur'an. This is in Mecca. This is early days. Some verses of the Qur'an, some chapters of the Qur'an had been revealed. And his sister, who had entered Islam before him, was reading this with her husband and others. And so he saw it. And we are told she hid it 
because he was not a Muslim yet and she was afraid and she did not want to show it to him. Okay, and if you go back in the history of the Islam of Umar ibn al-Khattab and how he enters into Islam, already at that point we are seeing that the Holy Quran is written. This is not only an oral tradition. We have writing that can authenticate what people say they learned by heart. In Medina al-Munawwara, the author tells us and others tell us, he actually gives us the names in this book. He gives us the names of 65 people who were official scribes of the Prophet. So as soon as the Holy Prophet communicates a verse that is revealed to him from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there are 65 people officially mandated by him, instructed by him at any given time to be sitting and writing these verses of the Quran. So no one can come back and say it was an all, only an oral tradition. Only by hearing and listening did people learn the Quran. It was written and there, are, there were manuscripts and this is how people learned the Quran. And he adds on page 69, upon the descent of the Wahi, as soon as the Quran was being revealed, the Prophet routinely called for one of his scribes to write down the latest verses. That those are just now been revealed. There is also evidence of proofreading after dictations. So the prophet reads, people write, and then it is proofread, it's read back to him. Once that task of recording the verses was complete, Zayd would read them back to the prophet to ensure that no scribal errors had crept in, even unintentionally. Zayd, who was with the holy prophet, grew up in his house. He would take it, and he was one of the people who could read. He would take it from the scribe and read it back to the prophet to make sure that it is exactly like the holy prophet wants them to write it. More. What about the arrangement of the Qur'an? What about the structure of the Holy Qur'an? So on page 70, he says, various reports show that the Prophet actively instructed his scribes about the placement of verses within the surah. And this is very well known. As soon as a verse, let's say a verse is re revealed on its own, not a full chapter. Sometimes a full chapter. Surah Al-An'am is revealed fully from beginning to end. Sometimes one chapter or one part of a verse is revealed, a part of a verse or a full verse, or a few verses. The Holy Prophet right away would say, put it before those verses in that surah, or at and after those. So exact location. Again, he says, nowhere do we find any reference to a disagreement in the ordering of verses within a particular surah. No one has ever said that there are, there are verses in some surah that some say should have been before or after other verses. None. And then he also says, for the rest, no issues. Scholars unanimously agree. What's the rest? What's the rest? The rest is, what if one verse, let's say a chapter of the Quran, let's say Surah Al-Baqarah should go in the Quran uh, after Surah Al-Imran. So chapter two should go after chapter three. What about that? Maybe that happened. Maybe the chapters of the Quran are not in the right order. So he says, scholars unanimously agree that to follow the Surah order of the Quran is not compulsory whether in prayer, in recitation, in learning, in teaching, or in memorization. And the proof is us as Muslims, when we begin to learn the Quran, usually we all start by learning the last chapters of the Quran. No one says you're not following the right order. Learn Surah Al-Fatiha and then Surah Al-Baqarah. You can if you want to, but that order does not change anything practically. And yet, on top of it, we do believe that even the Suwar, the order of the Suwar today, comes from the Holy Prophet. But let's say that wasn't the case. The important thing for us is, do we have access to the full scripture that was revealed to the Holy Prophet, chapter by chapter or not? And this is telling us that yes, we do.
So he says on page 76, by understanding the need to document every verse, the Muslim community already swelling with the ranks of the Huffar was setting up both an aid to memorization and a barrier to shield the text from corruptive influences, from anyone to come and make changes to the Quran. Even the grind of the Meccan oppression could not dampen this resolve. And when the Muslims at last enjoyed prosperity in Medina, the entire nation, literate and illiterate alike, took this task to heart. At the center of this nation resided its energizing focal point. Who was the driver behind all of this importance and preservation of the Quran? The final messenger dictating, explaining, and arranging every verse through divine inspiration, which, which was his privilege alone until all the pieces of the book were complete. And so when you put all of this together, you see that the Holy Prophet was involved in every verse of the Quran in their order within every chapter. And then we believe even the chapters of the Quran that we find today, Al-Fatiha, Al-Baqarah, Al-Imran, Al-Nisa, Al-Ma'idah, these chapters, these suwar, have all been under his instruction. He is the one who has put it together. And inshallah, one day when we get into tafsir lessons, we'll see why we have this order and how the suwar are actually interconnected with one another. Okay, inshallah, we get into that. And allow me to just finish with this. So here, I'm only adding a couple of references for you because they're also available in English. They're excellent books if you want to go back to them. The first one is... Uh, the Prologomena to the Quran. This is written, this is the first volume of the Tafsir of Sayyid al-Khu'i in which he spends the majority of that volume not talking about Tafsir, but talking about what we refer to as uh, the Quranic sciences. Okay, so the compilation of the Quran, the Qira'at, all of that. And of course, at the very end, he reaches Surah Al-Fatiha and he never wrote the next volumes to write the rest of his Tafsir. But that's the first one, so you can read it to better understand the Qur'an. It's available in English. A second excellent book, very small book that really deserves to be read, The Qur'an in Islam by Sayyid Muhammad Hussain Tabatabai. And in English, the full title is Its Impacts, Influences on the Life of Muslims. And the last book, the one that I just quoted from, uh, written by this Sunni scholar who is an academic who has taught in and, and Western universities and it's a very well very nice looking book as well. It's called The History of the Quranic Text from Revelation to Compilation, a comparative study with the Old and New Testament. And of course, we don't agree with everything written in this book, and it, but it does deserve, because it's a good academic work, it really does deserve to be studied. With this, I will stop here. Uh, and inshallah, you found this useful and that it's a good compact uh, understanding of this topic of the authenticity of the Quran. And that now we would be ready to go back to the bigger topic of the prophethood of Prophet Muhammad sallallahu and to talk specifically about what do we mean when we say the Quran, the Islam is universal and Islam is eternal. That's where we want to get into. Okay, so if you have any questions, concerns, uh, I do have the chat open if you want to write anything. Or if you want to go ahead and talk, I'm uh, happy to, to do that as well. I من باب إنه I don't hurt his feelings and at the same time explain to him our point of view as Shia's. His question was um, uh, 
um, why, like he says, we don't hate Imam Ali, but why do you guys hate uh, Abu Bakr Ohai? I tried to explain to him that we don't hate him, but um, yani, I tried to explain to him our point of view, but like without hurting his feelings. So what would be the best way to like explain to someone like that? Okay, so inshallah, the, the detailed answer to this uh, is going to come a little bit later when we reach the lessons on imamah, and we're really not far from that. But the short answer to this yes. uh, is not, it's that uh, this is, has, it's not about hate and love in the normal way. You know, mm -hmm. it's not like, uh, you know, you hate and love an actor or a friend, or that's not what it is. I know we're talking about uh, religion, we're talking about theology, we're talking about what God wants us to do and doesn't want us to do. So when I like, I like because God tells me to like. And when I don't like, I don't like or I hate because God tells me to hate. So mm -hmm. in itself, that, that, that's the premise. Layer two is then we need to understand what did these people do? And if they did things that should be disliked by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Holy Prophet, then it's okay for me to dislike them. And if they did things that were liked by Allah and his Holy Prophet, then I should like them. That's, that's the second layer. Okay, so obviously then you have to get into the history of it. There's no other way. You have to get into the history, go through especially the events that transpired at the death of the Holy Prophet and afterwards. What happened? What did they do? And if someone does this, are they worthy of love? And are they worthy of our affection and inspiration and admiration? Do we consider them our role models or do we say that they made very grave mistakes? And if the mistakes are accidental, that's one thing. If they were intentional and pre-planned, that makes it a lot worse. And so because of that, we believe that they made those mistakes. They knew what they were doing. They lived at the time of the Holy Prophet. They knew who Imam Ali was, what his role was. And yet they still proceeded to take over the Khilafah and ruin the history of Islam for everyone from that point onwards. Okay, so that's layer two. Layer three is the moment someone asks a question in this way, they are putting Imam Ali alayhi salam and people like Abu Bakr and Umar and others at the same level. We do not believe that Imam Ali alayhi salam can be compared to anyone else because we believe he has been appointed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to play a divine role. No different than a prophet is appointed to play a prophetic role. He's an imam in that sense. So it's not, it's like saying, why do you uh, like uh, uh, the Holy Prophet and Mataran, you don't like uh, his uncle Al-Abbas as much? Okay, we should not even having, be having this conversation because the reason I, I like or I'm attached to the Holy Prophet is because of a theological belief system that I have that Allah appointed him in a role. And this is what we believe in the case of Imam Ali salam, that he was divinely appointed in a role, which means that I'm not even at a point of discussing in what way should I make him equal or not equal to others. It, it completely uh, refutes that whole or disqualifies or cancels out that whole discussion. Imam Ali salam, is not to be compared unless you're comparing him to someone who is divinely appointed, then we can have that conversation. So this is why, inshallah, when we will talk about the topic of imama, we will see, we will start by saying, what do the Shia mean when they say imam? And it's based on three pillars, on three criteria. The first is that it's someone who is divinely appointed. It's not someone that the Prophet, the prophet himself chose to appoint or that the Shia like more than someone else. We believe that Allah appointed, asked, ordered, commanded the Prophet to appoint this man, Imam Ali salam, as an Imam. And Imam comes with two more criteria. So he's divinely appointed 
Two, he is infallible. He does not make mistakes in the same exact manner as prophets are infallible. And we talked about infallibility when we talked about general prophethood. And he has divine knowledge, just like prophets have divine knowledge, in order to play his imama role, to continue the prophetic mission and keep this, the guidance of humanity through his mission. If you establish this, then you see that we're not talking about the same thing because they want to reduce the role of the imam to the political role of a khalifa, which is completely a smallest detail, insignificant. It's like saying, is the prophet a khalifa or not? Well, even if he is not a khalifa in the political sense, am I going to be less attached to him? Am I going to let, follow him any less? No. So my attachment and my love and my uh, you know, belonging, feeling of belonging to Imam Ali السلام, is in that same sense. Just like I follow the Holy Prophet because he's divinely appointed and that's my divine duty to do so, the same thing applies to Imam Ali السلام. As for the others, they're just normal human beings. They make mistakes. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. We have to study them. And when they are good, we say they were good here. And when they are bad, we say they were bad there. And it stops there. It's very simple. But it does require... Uh, a little bit of a study of history and getting into the details in a manner that people are actually open and willing to look into. And inshallah, when we talk about the topic of imamah, which is coming very soon, uh, we are going to talk about all of this. Inshallah, this answers the question. Ahsan Sayyidina. Shukran. Allah Okay, brothers. So I don't think that there are any other questions, concerns, issues. So inshallah, we're going to be putting this, uh, this lecture as well as the many others. Uh, believe me, they're coming very soon. Inshallah, they'll be uploaded on YouTube. All the other lectures, they're going to be uh, put on YouTube. And if you have any other questions, concerns, recommendations, if you think of a better way for us to have these sessions, inshallah, this is working out well. Uh, please don't hesitate to write on our group. Uh, and we'll take all the feedback and consideration so that it continues to be uh, beneficial to all of you and convenient to all of you. Uh, please keep me in your prayers as you are all in mine, inshallah. It's time for prayer. Keep your prayers as your priority, especially in these days and nights. We're getting closer and closer to the holy month of Ramadan. Do not forget that. Prepare yourselves mentally, prepare yourselves physically, and prepare yourself spiritually. We are right almost on the cusp. In a few days, we're going to be in the middle of the month of Sha'ban, where there are a lot of amal to do, the 13, 14, 15, starting the 12th. So do not miss out on those, especially if you have the time and the energy. Uh, you know, this, uh, make this into an opportunity, a golden opportunity, and don't waste it. And inshallah, we see all of us, uh, each other soon. Uh, I miss you, and I'm sure you miss each other too. Uh, and inshallah, may God protect all of you and your families. And uh, we talk soon, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum.